The following lecture was delivered at the 13th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Providence, Rhode Island, a project of the Roar Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it, and we encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Mendel Kalmanson will now present his lecture, Mission Possible. Welcome, everybody. I'm waiting for my notes, so in the meantime, I figured I'll share a few lighthearted stories. One of my favorite ones is the one told about David Goldberg, who was driving home from work one Friday afternoon. And on his way home, he notices out of the corner of his eye a car broken down at the side of the road and a man standing there with a kippah on his head. He thinks to himself, it's quite late, I should get home, but on the other hand, here's a Jewish man in need. And so he pulls over to the side. He takes out his tools. Okay, admittedly, this part doesn't really fit a realistic image of the typical Jewish husband. But anyhow, he helps the guy, fixes his car, and as he's walking around, he notices the guy sporting a large silver cross. It's quite surprised, he tells the fellow, Excuse me, I don't mean to pry, but are you Jewish by any chance? The man says, absolutely not. He says, then why are you wearing this kippah on your head? He says, oh, that, let me explain. Every year on my birthday, my mom presents me with a beautiful gift. And this year, she presented me with this hat. And she told me, son, if you ever break down at the side of the highway, take this out, put it on your head and you'll have help in no time. And I like this story because every joke is a truth wrapped in a smile. And this one, too, conveys that sense of Jewish camaraderie, brotherhood, and peoplehood. And I think it's that sense of unity that pervades the wonderful few days that we've spent together. And I just want to take a moment to pay tribute to Achtos, to Avat Yisrael, to that sense of connectivity. You do know the story of the fellow who becomes the very first United States president that is Jewish. And he calls up his mother and he says, Mom, I won the presidency. She says, no, no. He says, Mom, this is a very big deal. I don't know if you know. I'm the very first Jew who's become president. She says, what do you want me to do? He says, well, I'm going to be speaking at the inaugural address. Please, God, I'd like you to come and visit. She says, ah, that's a schlep. He says, Mom, I'll send you my plane, Air Force One, to Boca. She says, okay. She gets up there on the stage, the dais. She's sitting between the vice president and the secretary of state. And her son is being sworn in, one hand on the Bible. She turns to the vice president. She nudges him in the ribs and she says, you see that man over there? His brother's a doctor. <laughs> Friends, there are seven instances in human history as recorded in the Torah where God intervenes in the lives of a person or a people. And he encourages them to take one step forward to move on in their respective journeys. The first individual was Noah. And from God's words, it's text one in the handout, go out of the ark, you, your wife, and your children. The sages deduce that Noah 
would have remained in the ark had God not commanded him and his family to leave. The second instance where God tells an individual to leave for one place, from one place for another, is possibly the most famous one of them all. Can anyone think of which journey that is? Exactly. See text 2. Lech lecha, says God to Abraham. Go forth from your land, your birthplace, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. In the third instance, it is Moshe, the first Jewish leader who needs encouraging. Text 3. Our sages teach the Holy One, blessed be he, spent a full seven days negotiating with Moshe in order to convince him to undertake the mission to lead the people out of Egypt. The fourth instance takes place three days after being liberated from Pharaoh's Egypt. When suddenly, having changed their minds, the Israelites now find themselves trapped between a raging sea before them and a raging army behind them. Text 4, the Lord said to Moshe, Speak to the children of Israel and tell them to travel. The fifth episode takes place just after the Egyptian army are miraculously drowned and the Jewish people begin to collect the washed-up Egyptian gold, silver, and the abundant wealth which had adorned the Egyptian horses and chariots. So preoccupied were they with gathering this newfound wealth that the Torah tells us, and I quote, that Moshe led Israel away from the Red Sea, meaning he had to forcibly move them away, in the words of Rashi, against their will. The sixth incident took place not long afterwards, but is only recorded in the final book of the Torah, in Deuteronomy, when Moshe, in the very last 37 days of his life, addresses the Jewish people. He's speaking to them, he's reviewing the past 40 years of their relationship, and he reminds them about a particular set of instructions God gave them when they stood at Mount Sinai after receiving the Torah. See text 5. Moshe says, God spoke to us in Chorav saying, You have long enough stayed at this mountain. Turn away and take your journey. It becomes clear that on this occasion as well, the Jewish people needed encouraging in order to move on to the next step of their journey. And in the seventh and the final instance, responding to the resistance of the Jewish people to leave the desert behind and to travel forth into the promised land, Moshe tells the people, see text 6, Behold, God has set the land before you. Go up and possess it. I'd like to propose that each of these instances of immobility were motivated and come to represent seven primary different emotions or conditions which tend to hold us back from taking the steps we know to be important in our life's journey towards our own personal promised land. On a lighter note, they tell the story of a priest and a pastor from the local churches. They're standing by the side of the road. They are pounding a sign into the ground that reads, The end is near! Turn yourself around now before it's too late. As a car speeds past them, the driver yells, Leave us alone, you religious nuts. From the curb, they heard screeching tires and a huge splash. The priest turns to the pastor and says, Do you think the sign should just say, Bridge is down? The first of those conditions is grief and sorrow. 
Of all individuals we encounter in the Torah, there is none that experiences the degree of despair and desolation that Noah does when he observes the devastation wreaked by the great flood, which had completely wiped out the entire human race and much of the animal and vegetable kingdoms. We can only imagine the shock, the horror Noah experiences when he timidly opens the door of the ark and is greeted by the eerie silence created by this recent global holocaust. From the Torah's depiction of Noah's twilight years, we get the sense that Noah would forever be haunted by survivor's guilt. And he would also always be afflicted by a profound sense of regret that he didn't do more to save his generation. It's no wonder then that Noah needed prodding in order to leave the ark. After all, who in their right mind would have the strength to face this terrifying life after death? Who among us would have the courage and confidence to start a new chapter in human history months after the previous chapter was ripped to shreds? God's command to Noah to, quote, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth suddenly takes on new meaning when we take into account the complete annihilation which precedes it. I'm reminded of a moving account shared by the late Holocaust survivor and activist and Nobel Peace Prize, and Nobel Peace Prize winner, Elie Wiesel, of blessed memory. In 1965, Elie was still a 37-year-old bachelor, and the Lubavitcher Rebbe reached out to him, and in a 12-page letter in Yiddish, implored him to get married and to have a child. The Rebbe wrote in that letter that this would be his most powerful response to Hitler's final solution. The Rebbe wrote, and I quote, With all of the conviction that I can muster, I'd like to say that notwithstanding the importance of telling the younger generation about the tragic experiences and losses suffered and how difficult it is to be liberated from those terrifying memories and ordeals of the past, in my estimation, the main calling of our time is to fulfill the teaching which states, against your will, you must live, with the emphasis on you must live. In other words, you must make the effort to establish a Jewish home and family, which will certainly contribute to the downfall of Hitlerism, proving futile his efforts that there be one chassid of Vizhnitz less. Elie Wiesel was from the Vizhnitz dynasty. On a little bit of a lighter note, Elie Wiesel says he once came to a Hasidic Farangin in 770, and the Rebbe called him up to the dais and offered him a l'chaim. And he said, in Vizhnitz, we have a custom that we don't drink alone. The Rebbe picked up a l'chaim and he said, and in Chabad Lubavitch, we have a custom that we don't stop at one. Four years after he received the letter, Wiesel married his wife of 46 years, Marion, and he attributed this decision in part to the Rebbe's letter to that wonderful moving reaching out in that Yiddish communication. As he related in an inter interview, the Rebbe was overjoyed at the news, he says, the greatest bouquet of flowers I ever received was from the Rebbe on my wedding day. And when Ellie and Marion's son, Elisha, who incidentally 
our community invited this year to come out to London and speak about his connection with his father, a wonderful young man who has taken on the mantle of his father's legacy. When he was born, the Rebbe sent him a note in which he wrote, and I quote, that his heart and soul were overflowing with joy. In his encouraging message to Ellie, who was traumatized by the Holocaust, he underwent in ways far more profound than was Noah by his, having observed and absorbed its horrors into every fiber of his being, the Rebbe echoed God's command to Noah post-flood, be fruitful and multiply. Do not allow your past to define your present and your future. Leave the ark and rebuild a new world. The second condition that very often holds us back is comfort, is complacency. Fast-forwarding ten generations, we encounter an icon class named Abraham, a man who continues to this day to be claimed by the three major religions of our world and billions of human beings as Avinu, as our father. He was an intellect par excellence, and his religious integrity was molded in the furnace of Nimrod, where he showed himself willing to die for his beliefs and his convictions. And then... At the age of 75, he was told by God, Lech Lecha, which means it's time to move on. From your land, our sages teach, actually refers to from your will. Eretz, the Hebrew word for land, etymologically is linked to the word Ratzon, which means your will. Says God to Abraham, leave your will. From your birthplace, the mystics teach us, is a reference to your emotional, your behavioral state of being. From your father's home, in the terminology of Kabbalah, Av, Aim, refer to the intellectual process, says God to Abram, the time has come to leave your intellectual frame of reference. But what was wrong with Abram's fervent will, his elevated emotional self, and his spiritually sophisticated worldview that he needed to leave it behind? But you see, Abram was being held back by a second condition which holds many of us back, from becoming the greatest version of ourselves, namely a comfort zone, however noble, however elevated, however refined. Hence God's message to Abraham was, leave your intellectual, psychological, emotional, and yes, spiritual comfort zone behind in order to travel onward to the land that I will show you. Sometimes, friends, the way to grow is to let go of what we know. There's a fascinating story in the Talmud which makes this point. I draw your attention to text 7. When Rabbi Zerah ascended from Babylonia to Eretz Yisrael, he fasted 100 fasts so that he would forget the Babylonian method of studying in the Talmud, so that it would not hinder him from adapting to the unique style of study prevalent in Eretz Yisrael. This story is very counterintuitive as typically we tend to work towards amassing knowledge, amassing expertise, reinforcing a specific method of learning that helps us process information and produce knowledge and intelligence. The truth is, however, that a fixed way of thinking often limits our understanding of things, and rather than define us, ends up confining us. Interestingly, modern experts are only now beginning to catch up. There's a fellow named Jim Quick who is a world expert in speed reading, memory improvement, and optimal brain performance. 
He has coached world-class businessmen, professionals like Elon Musk, on how to keep their mental performance at the highest level at all times. He has developed a particular method which is highly successful based on the acronym FAST, F-A-S-T. Do you know what the F in FAST stands for? It stands for the word forget. If you want to speed up your brain, he advises, you must first learn to forget what you already know about the subject. A lot of people don't learn faster because they feel like they already know the information. But your mind, he says, is like a parachute. It only works when it's open. On a lighter note, they tell the story of a fellow who was out at a restaurant and he observes a lovely elderly couple sitting at the table over and throughout dinner, the elderly man keeps referring to his wife in the most endearing terms. Honey, sweetie, my love. He's very impressed. They must be in their late 80s, early 90s. And so when the woman went off to the restroom, he goes over to the gentleman and he says, Sir, excuse me for prying, but I wanted to ask you, how do you keep the flame of passion, of romance so alive? I mean, I'm amazed. The guy says, what are you talking about? He says, well, I hear you referring to your wife as my love, my dearest. It's amazing. He says, oh, that, to tell you the truth, some years ago, I forgot her name. Back to Avraham. God's command of Lech Lecha was a call for lifelong growth and has become the clarion call for Jewish people ever since. From Avraham we learn that like a turtle whose shell must be discarded numerous times as it grows in order for it to be able to grow into a larger and better version of itself, we too need to constantly break out of the comfort zones we create for ourselves throughout life if we want to actualize our highest self. It's not comfortable, it's painful, but it's necessary. The third condition to hold us back are feelings of inadequacy. Fast forwarding another 10 generations, we encounter the most influential Jewish leader of all times, Moshe, a leader who has for thousands of years inspired not just Jewish, but universal leadership. As I mentioned a few days ago, beautifully documented in a wonderful book by Bruce Feiler called America's Prophet. As mentioned, our sages teach that the Holy One, blessed be He, had to spend seven days negotiating Moshe into undertaking this role. But why was Moshe so reluctant? Believe it or not, Moshe was plagued by feelings of inadequacy. The greatest Jewish leader in history did not believe that he had what it took to get the job done. In Moshe's own words, look at text 8. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should take the children of Israel out of Egypt? Text 10, Moshe says to the Lord, I beseech you, O God, I am not a man of words, neither from yesterday nor from the day before yesterday, for I am heavy of mouth and heavy of tongue. Join me in the following thought exercise. In this respect, do you relate to Moshe? How many of us have turned down jobs, relationships, or opportunities, personal or professional, due to thoughts of self-doubt and feelings of inadequacy? And do you know what God's response to Moshe was? God says to Moshe in text 11, some of my favorite words in the entire Torah, but the Lord said to him, who gave man a mouth? 
Or who makes one dumb or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? So now go. I will be with your mouth and I will instruct you that you shall speak. Friends, sometimes when we're pushed into the deep end of life, this is God's way of telling us, you can handle it. And the proof is that otherwise Hashem would not have nudged us into that scenario or situation in the first place. As the Midrash teaches, text 12, God does not ask of us more than what lies in our power to do. Elsewhere, another text, number 13, for Hashem only makes requests from people according to their abilities. This reminds me of one of my favorite stories told about the Rebbe. A gentleman from Europe came to see him with the following problem. I've started to become more Torah observant, but I have a girlfriend whom the Torah forbids to me, and I plan to marry her. He braced himself for a rebuke, and imagine his surprise when the Rebbe said simply, I envy you. The young man didn't quite grasp the meaning. The Rebbe, he thought, who is on the highest of spiritual levels, is envious of me, the guy who just told him of his intention to marry someone forbidden by the Torah? The Rebbe continued, There are many ladders in life, and each person is given his and her personal ladder. The ladders represent themselves as life's challenges, life's difficult choices. The tests you face are the ladders that elevate you to greater heights. The greater the challenge, therefore, the higher the ladder, the more steep, the more difficult to climb. God has given you this difficult test because He believes you can overcome it and has endowed you with the ability to do so. Very few are presented with a ladder as challenging as yours. Don't you see then why I envy you? It's very telling to note that the Hebrew word for a challenging test is nisayon, which is etymologically linked to the Hebrew word nes. What does nes mean? Miracle. Literally, it means elevation. Because according to Hasidic thinking, a test is God's way of saying, you are ready for the next level. This brings me to a beautiful story. I mentioned it the other day, but it's so powerful that I'll share it again today. Rabbi Moshe Yitzchak Hecht, who was the Chabad presence in New Haven, Connecticut. And just earlier today, I sat in on a session and this story was mentioned and his daughter was at the session and she said, that was my father. And I piped up and I said, and I was a, ten, I was a student at the school that he established. A very special individual. He worked so hard. And the man on him grew year by year with a synagogue, a school, a yeshiva, and many other responsibilities that required a staff several times that which he could afford. In 1974, he wrote to the Rebbe complaining that in 33 years of work, he felt he was way back at the very same place as when he started. And he simply couldn't continue. He signed off the letter with a heart-rending plea that, quote, the Rebbe should help and do all he can. The Rebbe responded, I have already followed your advice. I have sent there Rabbi Moshe Yitzhak Hecht. But it appears from your letter and from those preceding it that you are still not familiar with him and with the capabilities with which this person is endowed. Whatever the case, you should get to know him now. Immediately everything will change. Your mood, your trust in God, and your everyday happiness. Another cause for Moshe's reluctance in undertaking the mission 
is the one he expressed in his words, text 14. I beseech you, O Lord, send now your message with whom you would send. What do these words mean? Rashi said, Moshe, I know that I am not the one destined to take them into the land eventually and to be their future redeemer. You have other messengers. Send them. Text 16. Send by the hand of he whom you will send. In other words, by the hand of Mashiach, who was destined to be revealed. Meaning, as I understand it, Moshe was reluctant to embark on a mission he knew he was not destined to complete. We can imagine Moshe saying to himself, if I don't have what it takes to bring this people across the finish line and into the promised land, what is the point of my involvement in the first place? Join me in the following thought exercise. How many times do we get inspired by a cause and get involved hoping to really make a difference only to at some point throw up our hands in frustration at some point saying, what difference can I truly make anyways? Says God, history is not an individual sport. It's a team sport. It's not a sprint. It's a relay race involving countless players across time and space, each playing their part to move the objective towards its end goal one step at a time. You may not be able to do everything but you can surely do something. And that's all you are called upon to do. In the words of Rabbi Tarfon, text 17, it is not incumbent upon you to finish the task, but neither are you free to absolve yourself from it. The greatest example of this is a fascinating story involving Moshe's early life. Owing to Pharaoh's decree to kill all Jewish newborn males, little Moses was placed into a basket and hidden amongst the rushes. Upon seeing the basket, the Midrash relates that Batya, Pharaoh's daughter, extended her hand towards that basket, despite the basket being way beyond her reach. A miracle occurred, says the Midrash, and her arm was extended for many arm's lengths, enabling her thus to save that child. Our sages share the following lesson. Often we are confronted with a situation that seems way beyond our capacity to truly rectify. Someone is crying out for help, but there's nothing we can really do. By all natural criteria, the matter is simply beyond our control, beyond our reach. So we resign ourselves to inactivity, reasoning that the little we can do won't really make a difference anyways. But Pharaoh's daughter heard a child's cry and extended her arm nonetheless. An unbridgeable distance lay between her and that basket containing the weeping infant making her actions seem utterly pointless. But because she did the maximum of what she was capable, God extended the reach of her hand, enabling her to save a life and raise one of the greatest human beings ever to have lived. Friends, our job is to extend our hand, and how far our hand ends up extending is not in our control, but remains in God's hands. A beautiful story is told about a man named Bob Fox, an American pilot who flew a B-17 bomber during World War II. On one mission, he sustained hostile fire from Nazi anti-aircraft guns. Even though his gas tanks were hit, his plane didn't explode, and Fox was able to safely land his plane. On the morning following the raid, Fox asked his crew chief for the German shell that had hit his plane. He wanted to keep a souvenir of his good fortune. 
The crew chief reported that not one, but 11 explosive anti-aircraft shells had been found in the gas tanks. But mysteriously, none of them had detonated. The mechanic had never seen anything like this before. So the technicians opened the 11 rounds and found them hollow, missing the explosive charge. They were all empty except for one. And the exception contained a carefully rolled piece of paper. And on it, a message had been scrawled. And the note read, This is all we can do for you now. A courageous prisoner of war, forced to work on an assembly line in a Nazi munitions plant, had disarmed those bombs and scribbled this note. He couldn't end the war, but what he could do was save one plane. He couldn't do everything, but he could do something. And that's what he did. We must never discount the smallness of our deeds. Great movements for change start with small acts by people who had minimal capacity. Think of it. Pharaoh's daughter had only her arm to reach out to Moshe. Moshe had his staff, David his sling, Samson his jawbone, Rachav a string, and our assembly line worker, a small piece of paper. Moving on to the fourth emotion that holds us back very often, and that is fear. In the fourth event of divine intervention, it was fear that held the Jewish people captive. Text 18. Pharaoh had a change of heart. He harnessed his chariot. He took the people with him. And they chased after the Jewish people, hoping to force them back into slavery. Behind the Jewish people was this raging army. In front of them was a raging sea. There seemed to be no way out. Have you ever encountered a challenge so large that you said to yourself, there is simply no way out of this? That's the type of challenge the Jewish people faced at the sea. Put differently, how often do we allow the echo of the chariots of our past and overwhelming waves of anxiety induced by thoughts of our, our, our uncertain future to hold us captive in the present? How much of our lives do we spend thinking about perceived fears and pending catastrophes? Think about it for a moment. If I asked you, what percentage of your thoughts on a daily basis dwell on the future versus the present? What would your answer be? Try the following. Carry a pen and paper with you over the course of the next three days and catalog the amount of times you find your thoughts drifting towards fears or anxieties or uncertainties in the future. It was at the Red Sea that Moshe taught the people then and forever, don't be afraid. See the Lord's salvation that he will create for you today. You will see, my beloved people, says Moshe, that oftentimes all you need to do to split the seas and stand, that stand in your way is to take them one drop less seriously, to jump in with faith and fortitude in the Almighty who always has your back. On a lighter note, they tell the story of four Europeans go hiking together, and they get terribly lost. First, they run out of food. Then they run out of water. I'm so thirsty, says the Englishman. I must have tea. I'm so thirsty, says the Frenchman. I must have a glass of wine. I'm so thirsty, says the German. I must have a glass of beer. I'm so thirsty, says the Jew. I must have diabetes. You know the joke about the Jewish telegram, this is very old, but the uh, newer joke talks of a text or a WhatsApp. 
Start worrying. Details to follow. On the topic of worrying, a few points to consider. Mark Twain once said, I am an old man and have known a great many troubles, but most of them have never happened. <laughs> One way to demonstrate this is the following exercise. Please join me in the next moment. Try to recall right now what you were worrying about exactly one year ago. Close your eyes. Could you remember? And even if what you are worried about does end up materializing, it pays well to remember the words of Nelson DeMille who said, somehow our devils are never quite what we expect them to be when we meet them face to face. Furthermore, it's not as if the worrying of today makes any real difference to tomorrow's problems. No amount of regretting can change the past, and no amount of worrying can change the future. Additionally, worrying today for tomorrow doesn't only not help tomorrow, it robs you of the joys of today. In the words of Corey Ben Ten Boom, worrying is carrying tomorrow's load with today's strength. Carrying two days at once. Worrying doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrow, it empties today of its strength. A good friend of ours in London, who recently passed, once had the unique opportunity to meet Eleanor Roosevelt in his youth. And he will never forget a beautiful line that she said on that occasion. The past is history, the future is mystery, and the present is a gift, which is why they call it the present. Back to the terrified Jewish people at the sea, says Moshe, text 19, Don't be afraid, the Lord will fight for you, but you shall remain silent. In the words of one noted theologian, You pray and let God worry. It reminds me of the joke told about Yankel, always worried about everything in his life, and then one day, his co-workers noted that Yankel seemed like a changed man. They remarked that he didn't seem to be the least bit worried about anything. What's your secret? Says Yankel, I hired a professional warrior, and I no longer have any problems to worry about. They say to him, oh, professional warrior, wow, that sounds expensive, how much does it cost? He said, it costs 150 grand a year. 150 grand? But Yankel, we know you're about to declare bankruptcy. Aren't you worried about how you're going to pay him? He says, well, that's why I hired him. That's what I'm paying him to do. He should be worried, not me. And what was really the crux of God's advice to the Jewish people at the sea? What I'm about to tell you sounds very simple, but in fact, it's deeply helpful. God said, take one step forward, and then another, and then another. And at some point, you'll come to realize that what you perceived was impossible and impassable was really a figment of your own imagination. Sometimes the way to deal with a problem is not to look at the bigger picture. Let me say that again. Don't look at the bigger picture. Ignore the bigger picture because the bigger picture is overwhelming. On those occasions, the way to move forward is to ignore that and focus on taking that one step, one day at a time. It reminds me of a beautiful story told about one of the Rebbe's devoted secretaries named Rabbi Krinsky. A short while before his marriage, the Rebbe's assistant, he was married, he, the Rebbe's assistant at the time asked him if he wanted to join the Rebbe's secretariat. He was astonished at the request, but he enthusiastically responded that he would like to try. 
During the first week of employment, the Rebbe called Rabbi Krinsky into the office, and when he entered, he found the Rebbe correcting a letter draft. The Rebbe had made numerous corrections, and he asked Rabbi Krinsky to retype this letter. The task was daunting. The letter was replete with changes between and atop the lines, with arrows in every direction, pointing to further changes. It looked like quite a mess. The Rebbe guided Rabbi Krinsky how to decipher the letter. Start from the beginning, retype it word after word, line after line. In the end, you will see that everything works out okay. And Rabbi Krinsky understood this as a life lesson for finding clarity when things look confusing and disjointed. The fifth condition that holds us back from self-actualization is distraction, is digression. The fifth instance in the Torah takes place in the aftermath of the sea splitting for the Jewish people and the Egyptian army drowning. Let's look at text 20. Moshe led Israel away from the Red Sea and they went out into the desert of Shur. Text 21. Rashi. Moshe led Israel away. He led them away against their will. For the Egyptians had adorned their steeds with ornaments of gold and silver and the Jewish people were finding them in the sea. Therefore, he had to lead them away against their will. Now, while at face value, this scenario seems to reinforce certain anti-Semitic stereotypes relating to Jewish people and money, the Rebbe had a beautiful explanation which sheds new light on this episode. Based on a prevalent theme in Hasidism, the Rebbe explains that the wealth of Egypt represents the repository of Egypt's national energy and creativity. And hence, the Jewish people were going about meticulously collecting that wealth for the purpose of utilizing it later on for holy causes and consequentially redeeming, even elevating and incorporating the unholy energy of Egypt into the realm of holiness. This explains why Moshe had to literally stop the Jewish people in the middle of collecting against their will. They were so enthused and passionate about this noble pursuit they were engaged in that they needed to be forced to move on. But why indeed does Moshe stop them in the midst of their reappropriation project? And here we come to an important point. However important what they were doing at the time was, the time had come for them to move on, to do something even more important, which was their onward journey towards Mount Sinai to receive the Torah. Often we get so caught up in an issue or a cause or a project that it takes over our life and it holds us back from continuing forward along our particular life's mission and journey. In other words, not every fight you encounter is your fight. There is a fascinating letter of the Rebbe I've quoted here only in part where someone wrote to him to involve his shluchim in political matters to do with an issue that really touched on very high levels of government. I invite you to join me as I read this letter, page 22. Shalom ubracha. I'm surprised by the wording of your letter. You demand to know why Chabad Lubavitch representatives are not doing anything or are not doing enough related to this problem that you are very concerned with. Your questions would be no more logical if you asked a physician why he is not actively involved in a matter related to engineering. You should know that Chabad Lubavitch representatives have a specific mission assigned to them, which is to spread Judaism in the communities designated to them. Congressional resolutions and the like are not part of those duties that are planned for them. 
Furthermore, there is very little, if anything, they can achieve in the area that interests you most. Therefore, to divert their mind and attention, to turn their energies and their time to something not related to their mission, will be wasteful and diversionary to the work that they already do superbly and with full devotion. There's a very interesting story that needs explaining. A scholar once asked the Rebbe the following question. It is said in certain sources that the great Kabbalist, whose name was Rabbi Shlomo Molcho, who incidentally was later burned at the stake tragically for maintaining his Jewish beliefs, it is said that he reached the loftiest levels of holiness, yet in other texts it says that he did not fulfill his life's mission. How could this be? The Rebbe responded softly, What is the contradiction? And the way I understand this story is that each one of us is given a specific and customized mission and presented with the necessary abilities, talents, conditions, and circumstances to be successful. Sometimes inadvertently, we get sidetracked. Some of us end up distracted by the lure of materialism and others get involved in doing wonderful things. The point is that both have lost touch somehow with their life's central mission, their life's central purpose. It is okay to take detours in life, but it's essential to know when it's time to get back on the main road of your life's journey. The art of life is learning how to discern between the urgent and the important, between that which is right and that which is right for you. The surest way to avoid distraction and digression is to craft a personal mission statement and create a system that ensures that you refer back to it regularly. I recently came across a beautiful example of this in an essay written by the former chief rabbi of the Commonwealth, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. Timothy Ferris, compiler of the book Tribe of Mentors, asked me an interesting question. He asked, when you feel overwhelmed or unfocused, what do you do? I told him that just before I became chief rabbi in 1991, I realized that the sheer pressure of unexpected happenings, especially when you are in public life, can blow anyone off course. When someone asked British Prime Minister Harold Macmillan what he most feared, he replied, events, dear boy, events. So it became clear to me that I had to set out my objectives in advance in such a way to ensure that I would never forget and never be distracted from them. In 1991, we did not yet have smartphones or computerized diaries. I used a pocket notebook called a Philofax. Anybody familiar with the Philofax? So on the first page of my Philofax, I wrote my life goals. This meant that I saw them every time I looked into my diary. I was reminded of them several times daily. I still have them, and they have not changed in all of the intervening years. How far I was successful, I do not know, but this I know, that I never forgot where I was traveling to. I never lost sight of the destination. On a bit of a lighter note, they t uh, this is actually a true story. Rabbi Sachs uh, once attended a football game with the Archbishop of Canterbury. And if I'm not mistaken, they were both Arsenal fans. And Arsenal at the time was playing Chelsea. And sadly, Chelsea won. And the media was there, and they interviewed both of these great spiritual giants. And they said, does this prove that God doesn't exist? Rabbi Sachs said, no, it just proves he's a Chelsea fan. <laughs> the 
The sixth condition that holds us back are the highs produced by success. The sixth moment of divine intervention comes to us by way of a sermon Moshe gives in the last weeks of his life recorded in the fifth book of the Torah. Moshe is describing a fascinating exchange between God and the Jewish people that took place shortly after they received the Torah. Text 23. God spoke to us in Chorev saying, You have long enough stayed at this mountain. Turn away and take your journey. The mountain we're talking about, of course, is Mount Sinai. This is the scene of the most monumental event in Jewish and perhaps human history. God's revelation of his wisdom and will to mankind. Still, God says, you've been camping at this mountain too long. The time has come to move on. You see, the Jewish people were on such a high from the revelations they had been made privy to and from the spiritual intimacy they had experienced. And they wanted to hold on to that experience for as long as possible, afraid that it might never occur again. They could never top the spiritual consciousness they had just attained. And so they meant to hover as close as possible to that place and time as they possibly could. To bask in the afterglow of a unique and once-in-a-lifetime revelation, gripped also by the fear they might never experience that glow again. This is no different to those peak moments in our lives or careers which we cling to and we don't want to let go of. So exhilarating are they and so afraid are we that we will never have those again. How often do we live in the shadow of success, never mustering the courage to venture outside of its glow? How many one-hit wonders throughout history could have gone on to so much more, but they were held captive by the elation of past achievements? The list is endless, and it probably represents the norm rather than the exception to the norm. And it was for this reason that God told the Jewish people, don't stick around this mountain too long. The time has come to move on. The time has come to translate the revelations you were privy to into spiritual practices and routines. To take those spiritual gifts and insights you received and turn them into habits of the heart and habits of the mind. And ultimately, into codes of behavior which allow you to replicate, at least in part, the spiritual highs you were afraid would elude you ever after. And this is relevant in all areas of life. Don't let your failures def define you, but don't let your successes confine you. Put differently, for every mountain you climb, there's another peak waiting to be scaled. Judaism is not about destinations, but departures. Think about this for a moment. What is the basic storyline of the five books of Moses? What's the basic storyline, if you want to distill it into one sentence? The first and second cha chapters, Bereshit Hanach, set the stage, the setting, etc. But in Parsha 3, we begin the real story of Abraham, the Jewish people, and so forth. What are the first command to Abraham? Set forth on a journey. Where? To a land that I will show you. Friends, by the time we close the book of Devarim, have we reached that land? Are we there yet? Have we arrived? No. What does that tell you? We're not here to complete journeys. We're here to commence them. The purpose of this lifetime is not to arrive. It is to advance. One of the most powerful examples of this idea is the story of Jacob, 
who was on the run for most of his early life, and he finally returns home at long last, as the verse tells us in text 25, Jacob settled in the land of his father's dwelling in the land of Kinaan. Sigh of relief. You know that feeling when you get back home? After a long journey? Try after a number of decades? Says Rashi, listen to this. Jacob desired to settle in tranquility, but the tragedy of Joseph was sprung upon him. For when the righteous wish to settle in tranquility, God says, is it not enough for the righteous what is prepared for them in the world to come, that they also seek a tranquil life in this world? In other words, this lifetime is not about rest or retirement, finales or finish lines. It is about making the most of each and every day. There was a beautiful Yechidus that I read where someone asked the Rebbe a certain question. And I don't remember all the details, but the Rebbe said something very interesting, very rare personal comment. He said that before I go to bed each night, I ask myself, have I given my all this day? And if I find that I haven't, I continue working. Says the Zohar, Avkol yom vayom avidavidite. Each and every day has its own calling. Mankind's mission is not to achieve it all, but to give our all. In text 27, man was created to toil. Let me share with you a very interesting chapter of Chabad history. As I alluded to this the other day, on the occasion of the Rebbe's 70th birthday, he received thousands of letters from around the world from well-wishers. And among them were several that suggested that perhaps it is time he considered slowing down and taking it easy after his many fruitful decades as a leader and activist. At the Farbring and celebrating that occasion, the Rebbe said, and I quote, I have been asked, now that you have attained the age of 70, what are your plans? It would seem that this is an appropriate time to rest. Said the Rebbe, my response to that is that we must begin to accomplish even more. On the occasion of entering 170s, he's referring to himself, this year we will establish at least 70 new institutions. It's quite a large sum. I will now partner, says the Rebbe, with anyone who will undertake these projects. We will cover from headquarters at least 10% of the expenses of funding these 70, even 71 institutions. And then the Rebbe said, and don't be disturbed if throughout the year we will build not 70, but 80, and maybe even 100. On the contrary, May blessings be bestowed upon all those involved. There will surely be no impediments as far as the 10% is concerned. On a bit of a lighter note, you know the story of the older gentleman who would buy a lottery ticket every week. And his children would look after the tickets for him. And one day, one of his sons calls the rabbi and he says, Rabbi, we have a serious issue. The rabbi said, what is it? He said, this week my father won $500 million in the lottery. Rabbi says, that's great news. What's the problem? He said, we're afraid that if we break the news to him, he's quite old and fragile. We're concerned he might have a heart attack. But you, Rabbi, you're so wise, you'll find a way to communicate this to my, to my father. And yeah, the next day, father comes to Shachris, the rabbi pulls him aside after the service, and he says, tell me, David, if you were to win the lottery for $500 million, what would you do with the money? David said, I would give half of it to the synagogue. Friends, the rabbi had a heart attack. 
And how did the Rebbe celebrate his 80th birthday? He again called for a massive expansion of Chabad's activities in the Fabrengen on that occasion. And then, listen to this, upon the conclusion of the final segment of that six-hour-long address with pauses, but nonetheless, six hours of speaking, of engaging the congregation, which began at 9.30 p.m., following a full day's work, he personally distributed a gift to each of the seven or 8,000 men, women, and children who were either there or came from afar to receive these gifts, a special edition of the Hasidic classic, the Tanya. Do you know what time the last participant took his Tanya that night? At 6.15 a.m. The way the Rebbe celebrated his 80th birthday relates to a very moving exchange he had with a Canadian Jewish senator named Jerry Grafstein. He served as the Canadian Senate, at the Canadian Senate for 25 years. Grafstein relates, It's many years now that on every birthday, especially ones which march a, mark a full decade, a feeling of sadness and depression accompanies the celebration. We all want to be young, and our birthdays mark the aging process. The years passed, and each new decade of his life was accompanied by a period of severe depression. When celebrating his 50th, he says, I experienced a terrible crisis. My mental state was terrible, and I couldn't recover, even after I received help from professionals. My wife then suggested that I meet the Lubavitcher Rebbe and receive his advice to heal my pain. When I arrived, I was welcomed and brought to the Rebbe who gave me a dollar, and he blessed me with the traditional bracha v'hatzlacha, blessing and success. Then, unexpectedly, he gave me another dollar. When I asked him why the extra one, he said, what's bothering you? I felt ashamed to talk to the Rebbe in a public setting, but he handed me a third dollar, and he gestured to his ears, saying, no one's listening to us. Again, he asked, what's bothering you? Jeffrey says, I told him briefly about my age and my sense of lack of fulfillment with each passing decade. The Rebbe then asked, who was the greatest Jewish leader in history? I knew the answer, says Jeffrey, it was Moses, said the Rebbe. And how old was Moses when he took the first step of his career and became the leader of the Jewish people? I didn't know. The Rebbe replied, he was 80 years old. How is it possible at the age of 80, Moshe begins to lead such a complex people like the Jewish people, wonders the Rebbe. And he continued to explain, listen to this, because Moshe never looked back at what he had already done, rather he looked ahead at what else needed to be done. Anyone who looks at what needs to be done is young. Whoever looks back at what he did prior will always be old. He wished me bracha v'hatzlacha. We know this story because on his 80th birthday, he called up Rabbi Rabinovich, who's the rabbi of the Kotel, from whom I heard the story, and he invited him to join him at his birthday celebration. And Rabbi Rabinovich told him, but you're turning 80. He says, it's probably time to relax and to rest. He said, no, I'm launching a new career. Rabbi Rabinovich said, a new career at 80? Then he told him this story. The seventh emotion that holds us back self-actualization is the fear of change. Responding to the Israelites' resistance to leave the desert behind for the promised land, Moshe tells them, Behold, Hashem has set the land before you. Why were the Jewish people afraid to ascend on this first mission or this first aliyah, as it were? 
They had seen God's miraculous track record. They surely knew they had nothing to fear, at least in terms of defeat from the hands of the Canaanites. The Rebbe once gave a fascinating explanation, and he said, the spies were not afraid of failure. They were actually afraid of success. Until this point, they were eating manna from heaven. They were drinking water from a miraculous well. They were surrounded by clouds of glory. They were camped around the sanctuary. They were in continuous contact with God's presence. Never had a people lived in such close proximity to Hashem. Entering and settling the promised land, however, represented much more than a geographical relocation, but a completely different paradigm of living. They would have to fight battles, maintain an army, create an economy, farm the land, and a host of other challenges and changes brought on by leaving the idyllic spiritual oasis which they had inhabited in the desert. They would be entering a physical reality beset with material concerns. And that is what held them back. The mother of all paralysis, the fear of change. The law of inertia. Newton's first law, the law of motion states, an object at rest will stay at rest forever as long as nothing pushes or pulls on it. He could well have been describing the existential state of mankind as well. So crippling is the fear of change that we often forego the great benefits and rewards of change. We have a very tragic example of this in Jewish history. Do you know what percent of Jewish people actually left Egypt at the time of the great exodus? Let's get some numbers. Two-thirds left. 60%. We have a very educated crowd. Exactly. Assimilation was not at 50 or 60%, but 80%. Highest point of assimilation in our history was actually in Egypt. Why would 80% choose to remain behind in a reality that was so beset by persecution, by degradation, by humiliation, by oppression? What were they afraid of? Change. They preferred to remain behind in Egypt, living out miserable lives, rather than undergo the changes associated with gaining their freedom. Here's a thought exercise. How many areas of your life are not as you would like them to be? How many of them are in your control to fix, but the fear of change holds you back? Identify right now, if you will, for a moment, one area of your life, personal, or professional, that you will work towards changing for the better. In 2010, Gallup polled millions of employees from nearly 200 countries around the world. And do you know what they found? 85% of workers worldwide admit to hating their jobs when surveyed anonymously. 85% of the workforce is unhappy in the workforce. And this is why the Jewish people hesitated as they stood poised to finally enter the promised land, about to see their national dream fulfilled. And God's message of encouragement to them is as relevant today as it was then. There is no progress without change. And the only way to reach your personal promised land is by learning to embrace rather than to fear change. So in sum, there you have it. Seven critical moments in history where God intervenes in the lives of individuals or a people and encourages them to move forward. 
The reason we read these stories each year anew is not to remind ourselves of someone else's story, but to help us write a new chapter in our own. From Noah, we learn to move beyond grief, to give life another chance, and to build a whole new world. From Abraham, we learn to leave our comfort zones and open ourselves up to growth by letting go of a self-definition, however elevated, however noble. From Moshe, we learn to overcome feelings of inadequacy by recognizing that both the challenges and the abilities to overcome those challenges come from Hashem, who is always at our side. Standing between the Egyptian army and the sea, we learned that the way out of life's seemingly insurmountable problems is forward, is onward, one step at a time. On the other side of the sea, we learned about the importance of identifying our own personal mission statement and staying true to it, despite the countless distractions that come our way. At Sinai, we learned how to let go of our successes in order to make space for new ones. And at the border of the Holy Land, we learned that change is not our enemy, but our greatest friend. If only we learn how to harness its powers to propel us forward. So allow me to conclude by blessing each and every one of you with tremendous success in your journey onward and upward towards your own personal promised land. Thank you. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.